0: What's up, guys? Welcome to the Engage JSU podcast. We are in an on-campus ministry here at Jacksonville State University. We want to see God's kingdom come here at JSU as it is in heaven. What's up, Engage? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of John, the gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter eleven, looking at verse seventeen through twenty-seven. It's the Gospel of John, chapter eleven, verses seventeen through twenty-seven. So for the past four weeks, we've been looking at Jesus is. So our Jesus is series and. Through the book of John, we've looked at some of the different ways that Jesus has described himself. He described himself as lifted up, described himself as the bread of life, described himself as living water. But tonight, I want us to see that Jesus describes himself as the resurrection and the life. So that's what we'll be looking at tonight from the book of John, is Jesus, the resurrection, and the life. Before I get started, let's pray one more time. Dear Father, it's in Christ's name that I ask that you would give me power. Power as I preach your word, proclaim your truth. Father, would you exalt yourself tonight in the preaching of your word? Pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but for me, there's always a little bit of anxiety uh, when trying to find a new barber, it could be kind of tricky, right? I mean, you don't really know what a barber is about until you see them cut hair. And even then, they could cut someone else's hair perfectly. And then when they get to your hair and your cowlicks and the things that you, you know, the side that you sleep on, it, 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 it falls apart. And this is especially true with me, right? I remember when I was a kid, me and my friends would walk to the barbershop, and we always wanted the young barbers, right? Because the old barbers didn't know how to cut our hair in the new styles like we wanted. So if you showed up and, and your barber wasn't there, it was kind of like, OK, I'm going to take a risk on the other new guy, but I'm definitely not going to go with the old guy, right? And so you kind of sit and watch and you're like, okay, let me, let me see how he's getting this other guy, you know, like, let me, let me check this out first before I just sit down in the chair. L- let me see how he does. We want proof, right? We, we wanna see what you can do before we entrust ourselves to you. Eventually, I stopped trusting anybody. I learned how to cut my own hair, but that's a different story entirely. But I think it's kind of similar to what we see in John chapter 11. In a similar way, Jesus declares that he is the resurrection and the life. And along with this proclamation, he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And and it's almost as if Jesus is saying, you see that I can do what I say I can do, will you believe? Will you believe? So if you're a note taker, today from John chapter 11, I want us to see very simply that since Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we must believe in him. And so there's two aspects of this text I want to explore tonight. Jesus as the resurrection and Jesus as the life. So if you're a note taker, these are the simplest notes <laughs> you will ever have to take. Jesus is the resurrection. So like I said, today our text comes from John chapter 11. And this is kind of uh, where John tells the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so while I want us to focus on Jesus' words and, and his interactions in verses 17 through 27, the context of those verses with the rest of the story of Jesus raising Lazarus is really important. It's especially important tonight. So we'll take some time to look at what happens before and after Jesus utters the iconic phrase, I am the resurrection and the life. Before we get to verse 17, something strange has happened. A man named Lazarus is sick. He's really sick. And we actually find out that he's pretty good friends with Jesus. He's close friends with Jesus. In verse 3, Lazarus is referred to as the one Jesus Christ. Loves, And so we know that Lazarus and Jesus are pretty close. As it turns out, Lazarus' sister, Mary, is the one who would anoint Jesus' feet with the expensive ointment and wipe his feet with her hair. So knowing who Jesus is and what he's capable of, Mary... And Martha send for Jesus to come heal their brother, Lazarus. But it's kind of interesting. The text says that Jesus actually kind of refuses to come right away. And the reason that he gives is that he actually wants God to be glorified through the raising of Lazarus from the dead. He says that he allows this to happen so that God would be glorified among the people. So Jesus actually waits for Lazarus to pass away. And then he starts the journey to Bethany. And all of this leads up to what happens in verse 17. So let's go ahead and read it now. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. And so verse 17 starts off with the fact that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And then we see that When Martha hears of Jesus' approach, she goes out to meet him on the way. And when she goes out to meet, when they meet, Jesus tells Martha, your brother will rise again after she expresses concern that he didn't come quickly enough. And Martha responds and says, well, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so it's interesting to note here, Martha is affirming the conservative Pharisee doctrine of resurrection on the last day. You kind of had two camps at this point in the history of Israel. You had Pharisees and you had Sadducees. And the, the Pharisees were the ones who actually believed in angels and demons and the resurrection. And the Sadducees didn't believe in any of it. And the way that I was taught to remember how to distinguish these two is a corny joke that I I can't refrain from telling. The Sadducees didn't believe in the the resurrection. They were sad, you see. Please forgive me. Okay. But you'll never forget that. So you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're, They're kind of two sects of Judaism. And so that's where we know what Martha is talking about. She's saying, yeah, I know about the doctrine of the resurrection on the last day. I know about that. I'm not liberal like the Sadducees. But Jesus says something shocking. He says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, because actually the resurrection of the dead on the last day wasn't really a Pharisee doctrine. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Isaiah 26, verse 19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. And and really that's just two places where the Old Testament Confirms the resurrection of the dead. The prophets prophesied of a day when the dead would be raised. And so every time you think of a Pharisee, you shouldn't think of someone who is wrong about everything. See, they were right about many things, but they lacked the love and the compassion and the grace that Jesus would show. They added extra laws to what the Old Testament revealed. It wasn't, necessary, it wasn't necessarily that they were wrong about everything, but they spoke for God where he didn't speak. And so this is what Martha thinks Jesus is speaking about, the, the Jewish doctrine, the Old Testament doctrine, really, of the resurrection. And so when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus once again, as we've seen over and over and over in the book of John, he's taking an idea from the Old Testament and he's telling us that it points to him. He's telling us that the Old Testament promise of resurrection to eternal life is fulfilled in him. The, the resurrection to life that Daniel and Isaiah prophesied about, it, it comes true, but Jesus wants us to know that it only comes true because and through him. You see, only Jesus can give eternal life because only Jesus is the one who defeated death when he rose from the grave. And Jesus says this, he speaks this way because he knew that he would soon prove it. Right? Soon he would call Lazarus out of the grave. He would raise Lazarus from the dead. A man who had been dead four days would get up and walk. He would leave his grave. And not long after this, Jesus would be arrested. Jesus would be crucified. Jesus would be dead and buried in a grave for three days. And after this, he would come walking out of his grave. But see, unlike Lazarus, Jesus would rise never to die again. Jesus would rise as the first fruits of the resurrection of all who would believe in his name. Jesus would rise to signify that God the Father was pleased with his sacrifice and was pleased with the work that he did. Daniel points to Christ Isaiah points to Christ. Lazarus points to Christ, the one who is the resurrection and the life. You know, when I was a little kid, I used to like a game. I don't know what kind of game you call it, but it's the game named Jenga. Um, I don't know what category that, that type of game falls into, right? And uh, it's the game that has all the wooden little blocks and the whole point of the game is you pull a block out and then the other person pulls a block out and you pull a block out and you keep doing that until someone pulls the wrong block and the whole thing comes tumbling down. And if you keep playing the game long enough, if you and your friend are really good, you know, you're like expert Jenga players, then what will tend to happen is You'll get to the point where it's like there's one block that both of you know that if anyone even looks at it the wrong way, the whole thing just falls over. And, and what that block is, it's, it's integral to the integrity of the structure, right? Nobody wants to touch it, because if you pull that one, the entire thing falls. And it's similar, right, to the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, one of the most important and basic applications of this text that that Christians believe is that we believe in a literal and physical resurrection. If, If you pull that one doctrine out of place, The whole thing falls apart. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 12 puts it this way. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So we've got to understand that if we're going to say that we're Christians, if we're going to say we believe in Jesus, there's actually content to our faith. There are actually historical facts that we believe happened. And one of these things is that Jesus literally and physically raised from the dead. The Christian faith hinges on the fact that Jesus raised from the dead. But not only is there this kind of historical fact that we need to recognize, but we also need to recognize that practically the resurrection is what gives us hope as we sojourn and wander through this strange world. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Did you, did you see that? Did you catch that? The resurrection actually causes us. It's the power that we are born again to a living hope. And as we move through this world as Christians, we'll start to notice, if you're a Christian for long, you'll start to notice that the world and its systems, they're really opposed to Christ. They're opposed to Christians, they're they're opposed to the church. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's blatant, But if you're a Christian for any amount of time, you start to feel that rub. Something's not right. I'm I'm not welcome here. And this is why we face persecution. Later in John, Jesus would say, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So we shouldn't be surprised by this, actually. There are many people who are wringing their hands about how the world would treat Christians. But but Jesus told us how they would feel about us. But we also know that not only as Christians do we face persecution, but Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. We know that life in general is full of trials and tribulations. Romans 8 chapter 22 puts it this way. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, as we walk in this imperfect world, our minds, our bodies, our souls, they, they all cry out, this isn't right things aren't the way they should be there there shouldn't be pain and brokenness and suffering and sadness even the creation groans together with our spirits that things aren't right and many of these things can cause us to to doubt and they can cause us to despair but what jesus promises is that just as our bodies ache and grow old and groan, one day we'll be resurrected with glorified bodies. We'll be given new, literal, physical bodies. The earth, though it's passing away, will be recreated will live in a new heavens and a new earth with God himself. And Jesus' resurrection, which is pointed to by Lazarus' resurrection, which is talked about by Isaiah and Daniel, it tells us it won't be long. You will make it by the power that raised me from the grave. That's what Jesus says in his resurrection. And it also points to the fact that things will be made right. When we're resurrected to new life, we, we often think about dying and going to heaven and, and being a spirit that just floats around the throne of God That that is not what the Bible describes for us. Just as Jesus was literally and physically raised, we will be literally and physically raised. We'll have real bodies and we'll be on the new heavens and new earth with God. And so Jesus' resurrection causes us to have a living hope because we know that that sign that he performed points us to the day when we will stop with our inward groaning, because he will make all things right. Jesus is the resurrection. But not only does Jesus say that he is the resurrection, he also says that he is the life. And while, these, while we see this phrase so close together, we, we might think Jesus is the resurrection and the life. It's just one phrase, it kind of means the same thing. But I think there is a small distinction. Because if we, we keep reading, Jesus goes on to talk about what it means for him to be the life. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And this is important because if you remember the text that we read in Daniel, it says that the resurrection will include those raised to everlasting life and those raised to everlasting contempt and Jesus actually fills this out for us earlier in the book of John in John chapter 5 verses 28 Jesus says do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment And so it's important to know this because what we see in the Old Testament and what we see in the New Testament about the resurrection of the dead is that every single person who has died will be resurrected on the last day. It's only that some will be resurrected to life and some will be resurrected to judgment. So that's why when we see Jesus say, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. When the resurrection that Jesus is speaking of here is the specific resurrection of believers to life everlasting. Everlasting. And Jesus shows his power to accomplish this by raising Lazarus from the dead. But of course we know Lazarus would die again, wouldn't he? He wasn't raised to everlasting life, but he was raised to continue his normal earthly life and then die again. But you see, when Jesus was raised from the dead. He was raised never to die again. He was raised as the first fruits of those who would believe in him and be raised with him. And this is the resurrection that Jesus offers us. Jesus offers us a resurrection to life. As one who defeated death. Jesus offers a resurrection like his own. That though we may die, we would be raised to never die again. And you might hear that and go, man, what do I have to do to get that? What does Jesus require for such a promise? Only that you would believe, only that you would believe. Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he turns to Martha and he says, something that has echoed in my mind all week. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Well, we see Martha's answer, and it's a it's a pretty awesome answer, right? I don't think that there is uh, a chance that I would have given an answer this good. She says, "Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God." who is coming into the world the Christ the son of god jesus asks do you believe this do you do you believe it that jesus lived a perfect life that you could not live? Do you believe this, that Jesus was crucified and dead and buried? Do you believe this, that three days later he rose from the grave? If you believe this, you are granted eternal life. That's what Jesus promises. Do you believe this? Telling a lot of stories from my childhood tonight, I'm not sure why. But when I was a child, the coolest video game that came out was Super Mario 64. And the reason that it was so cool when it came out was because up until this time, really all video games were 2D. You know, you started at one side of the screen and you just moved to the other side of the screen. You could like jump over stuff and then like in the new ones you could like fly, but it was still just like two-dimensional. And so what happened in Super Mario 64 is that the game was 3D. So you were three-dimensional, the world was three-dimensional, you could walk around and you could do things that you just couldn't do in a two-dimensional game. You, You could go explore the castle. You could go explore the grounds around the castle. There were like weird glitches where you could jump into one place and then you'd be in some weird place in another part of the castle. And one of the cool things about this is, as the player, you really got to decide, you really got to control what Mario did with a lot less limitations you could decide that you didn't wanna play any levels, you would just run around and jump and do stupid stuff the whole game. In fact, after I beat the game, I would just take Mario just on a joy ride, just jumping around, jumping off of the building, jumping off of the castle. And while we are not video games, we're not living in a virtual world, the Bible does tell us that we're to be controlled by something. The Bible tells us that we're to be controlled by Christ, that he controls and directs our lives. And, and the Bible points to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ as a reason for this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when we think about Jesus giving us life as the resurrection and the life, one of the ways that we apply this is, yes, eternal life, but also the life we have now is given up for service to him. One of the things it means is that our life isn't lived as a selfish Inward, all all-about-me life. But our life is lived now as Christians patterned after Christ's life and, and doing what he desires for us. And one of the things that that means, even more practically, is it means putting other people's needs before our own. It also means That when our desires conflict with God's, with God's revelation, with his word, we we don't do what we want, but we do what God would have us to do. It means that now that we have been forgiven of our sin and given life eternal, we turn this earthly life over to Jesus and we do whatever we can wherever we are to advance his kingdom. And it doesn't just look like standing on a stage and and preaching in whatever area of life God has you in. You can use it to preach Christ and to be like Christ. And even more specifically, what it means to look like Christ and live like Christ is love. Jesus summed up the commandments in love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So we have this contrast of life and death. Jesus gives us the life, and he says, If you're in the life, if you're walking in the life, what does it look like? It looks like love. It looks like a love for the brothers. And it's kind of interesting. In this specific text, it's actually speaking of love for other Christians. He says that if you're in the life, you love the brothers. That's language for brothers in Christ. And it's not that you shouldn't love other people. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. We, we see commandments to love those who would not be kind to us. But specifically here it says love the brothers. And sometimes texts like this, they, they get twisted up. and They get used almost like a weapon against people. Like if you loved me, you'd let me do whatever I want however I want it, whenever I want it, but that that really isn't what love is. To love the brothers, to, to love other Christians, sometimes means gently, kindly correcting someone. So sometimes love looks like kindly telling the truth sometimes about sin, sometimes about its consequences. Sometimes love looks like feeding and clothing and protecting. Sometimes it looks like act of, acts of service. But we do know this, if you don't love other Christians as a baseline in your heart and in your actions, How could you have been given new life in Jesus? Love your enemies, but of course love your brothers. I've seen a quote kind of going around, and the more I try to look into it, the more I don't think anybody knows who actually said it. You know some quotes like that. You Google it, you're like, hey, who said that? They're like, Thomas Jefferson. Actually, um, it was on The Office. And you're like... (laughs) Those are two really different sources. But anyway, the quote is attributed to Gandhi most of the time. And it says, I like your Christ. It is your Christians I do not like. They are so unlike your Christ. And while if most of us were honest, this quote might resonate with a part of us, right? We, we all know Christians who are imperfect, We all know Christians who claim the name of Christ but don't seem to be his followers. But a text like 1 John, if we're applying the life of Christ and we're applying the love of Christ, shows us that real Christians love other Christians enough to get right down in the mud with them and love them through their imperfections. So Jesus, as the resurrection and the life, shows us the power he has to raise the dead, gives us a hope that we can hold on to until we're given new bodies that don't groan. And he also tells us that he is the life, that through him we would have eternal life and the life that we do have now, we would lay down for him and his kingdom and our brothers. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. What's so sweet about this truth is that when we're resurrected, on the last day to a literal physical world where we will commune with God and his people perfectly forever. When we're resurrected, we will see Christ face to face and we will have perfect bodies in a perfect world with no more pain, no more sorrow, no more evil, no more brokenness. And the Bible says that this is the hope that we cling to when life is hard. Jesus promised that this life would have trouble, but he promised that if you cling to him, hoping in the resurrection that he promises, that you can make it to the end. And when you make it, you realize that it wasn't your clinging at all that kept you, but it was His. Jesus promises resurrection and life. Do you believe this? Father, thank you for giving yourself up. Thank you for dying for sinners that you bled and died and you got out of the grave and you call us to believe in you, believe in the resurrection, believe we would rise on the last day. Father, I pray that you would strengthen me, strengthen every believer in this room to continue on one more day, one more week, one more month, one more year, one more lifetime of hoping in the eternal hope, the living hope that you provide in your resurrection. We pray and ask this in your name.